Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Drs. Jacob Pendergrast and Don Branch, who will be discussing their recent work, a prospective observational study of incidents, natural history, and risk factors for IVIG-mediated hemolysis. Welcome, Dr. Pendergrass and Dr. Branch. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Pendergrass, would you please introduce yourself? Hi. Yeah, so my name is Jacob. I am an associate medical director of the Blood Transfusion Service at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. Thank you. And Dr. Branch, can you introduce yourself? Surely. Um, I'm Don Branch. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Medicine, and I'm a senior scientist with the Canadian Blood Services uh, located in Toronto, uh, Ontario, Canada. Thank you both. So before we get started, can you summarize your study for our listeners? Uh, well, I can, I can take a shot at that. So I think the, the question that we were, we were asked to address by the Canadian IVIG pharmacovigilance group um, was why there seemed to be so many cases of IVIG-associated hemolysis being reported. And this is not a, not a new problem. We've, you know, we've known that this can happen as a side effect of, of IVIG therapy really since high-dose protocols began uh, becoming popular in the 1980s, but it really seemed to be increasing in frequency and the question was, is this like a true change or is this people are becoming more aware and are looking for it? Um, are, the, are the reports that are coming in all truly hemolysis? Are some of these just being misinterpreted as hemolysis because the hemoglobin drops um, and, you know, maybe that's dilutional? Uh, the patients who are hemolyzing, is there, is there anything that puts them at particular risk? Um, what is the mechanism by which this is occurring? There was just, there was so much that was unknown about this. Um, and so the, the question was, how do we, how do we really capture what is going on with this problem? And the, uh, the solution that we thought would be necessary to, to get at that is then rather than sort of doing these retrospective reviews of, of IVIG hemolysis that are picked up by clinicians who then call and say, look, my patient hemolyzed, is we needed to take every single patient who got IVIG and prospectively follow them and just watch as sort of as a natural history kind of study to see what, what happens, who hemolyzed, what are the mechanisms by which it occurs. Um, and then because we were doing this prospectively, we had an opportunity to do a whole bunch of additional tests that you can't order retrospectively. So we could, we could collect uh, DNA, which we could then do um, genetic studies to look for, you know, uh, congenital predisposition for this to happen. We could profile patients cytokines, you know, before, during and after an IVIG infusion, and then, you know, also capture a lot of demographics, uh, you know, other medical history and that sort of thing. So that's, that was sort of the idea. So we were just going to prospectively watch all the patients who got high dose IVIG and see what happened. And it, it took a long time to, to capture enough patients that we could do that. But, uh, but once we got to uh, just under a hundred IVIG infusions, we had, we had a pretty good data set to work with. If I can maybe just add some perspective to, to this discussion. Um, it, it's really interesting that uh, the manufacturing process of IVIG is really sort of one of the culprits in, in this whole 
idea of hemolysis. There was basically no no hemolysis reported by IVIG up until about 2012. Um, yet there was a you know quite a few manufacturers out there, and then there was a problem they thought with the IVIG in that the process that they were making this purified IgG from multiple donors plasma was not producing a very pure form of IgG. So they changed their manufacturing process to get much purer form of IgG without IgM or IgA or any, in some proteins. And when they did that, that's when hemolysis started happening. Um, so from about 212 um, to maybe 215 or 216, they had a lot of reports of hemolysis. And, and this um, resulted in um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration of the United States, having reports of hemolysis that was uh, from one individual company that made them put out what they call an FDA black box warning people about hemolysis and IVIG from this one particular manufacturer. About the same time, the Canadian uh, Committee on uh, 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 Pharmacovigilance invited myself to partake in, in their committee meetings where they were actually looking at IVIG-related hemolysis, and much of it was coming from Canada at the time. So that prompted us uh, being Jacob and myself and others from the University Health Network to sort of start asking questions about IVIG-related hemolysis and is there any way to study this properly? Does it really happen? Is it due to brands or, or uh, what is causing it? Um, and interestingly enough, at around the same time, I think it was 2014, 2013, the Food and Drug Administration became so concerned about IVIG-related hemolysis that they, they uh, put together a workshop with the National Institutes of Health that was held in Bethesda for two days workshop on specifically IVIG related hemolysis and basically uh, risk factors, uh, manufacturing processes, uh, incidents, and, and basically covered the whole gamut of this idea of IVIG hemolysis. That's when Jacob and I uh, really got serious about trying to put together a study. And, um, and the results of the study are what Jacob just published. So you mentioned this study has been a, almost a decade in the making. What did you find to be the hardest parts of it? Well, I can, I can say like, so Don has been sort of very generously referring this to this as, as my paper, but, you know, he was really the, um, you know, the, the lead investigator on, on, on pulling together all the logistics of making this study happen. Um, and, you know, the reason it was so complicated was not only did we have to, you know, find these patients who had IVIG ordered in high doses and get to them to enroll them in time so that we could get some baseline blood work drawn before the IVIG was given. Uh, we also had all sorts of additional tests that we wanted to do that required collecting samples and sending it all over the world, really. So, you know, some of the tests were done in Don's lab uh, here in Toronto, you know, specifically the, the monocyte monolayer assay, um, which is, which was very, very informative in this study. It, it told us quite a lot of interesting 
information about the mechanism of hemolysis. But you know the the, the sample collection and transportation requirements for that test are, are tricky. So just getting the samples from the hospital into Don's lab so that he could run that assay was tricky. Then beyond that, you know, Don has this you know, network of international connections, uh, you know, which the envy of everybody I know of, you know, very, um, uh, very smart people in the Netherlands and uh, Sweden in the United States who, who have uh, laboratories that can do some of the, the more obscure tests that we wanted to do. You know, the genotyping studies, the cytokine profiling, um, you know, the, the subclass analysis of the immunoglobulins that we were looting off. So just getting all of these samples, and again, you have to remember that we had patients that were having samples drawn on three different occasions before the IVIG, immediately afterwards, and five to 10 days later, simply getting all of those samples sorted and distributed and all the reports put back together again into a single record um, was not easy. And, uh, and there, you know, for sure, there were <laughs> There were times that the study was taking so long and we had a, all this anxiety about, God, someone's going to beat us to the punch on this and they're going to do this, this, our own study. And then we realized nobody would take this on because it was, it was so logistically challenging um, that, uh, that we are fairly confident that even though it was taking us a while to get it done, that uh, uh, most people would, would not want the headache of all the, uh, all the sample management and, uh, and data collection that was involved. So that's, that was, to my mind, that was, that was the hardest part of this. It was quite a project. Um, and I also should say that from that FDA NIH workshop, um, at the time, this is 2014, there was no prospective studies at all. Every, everybody was sort of guessing at, you know, what the incidence was of IVIG related hemolysis uh, you, you know, what was causing it. They, they weren't even sure it was uh, due to FC receptor mediated phagocytosis. Um, they were all pretty sure it was due to anti-A and anti-B because it seemed like only non-group O positive individuals would hemolyze, but nobody was really sure if that was even the case. Um, there were odd reports of group O's having hemolysis, so nobody was quite sure what was going on. So from that meeting, there were lots of kind of recommendations about what should be done in order to, you know, get a handle on what this IVIG hemolysis is. And I think we took notes and I think we tried to do every single thing in our study that was recommended at that FDA workshop. In other words, genotyping, uh, subclass of, I, of, I, of anti-A, anti-B, is it anti-A, anti-B, we did it all. Yeah, you were tracking levels and CRP levels, and yeah, yeah, everything, and and uh, and and that also took some time to get it all organized and make sure that we were getting the cooperation, uh, which we're grateful for. But it wasn't always easy to get all the samples that we we needed. I love that answer because I think people think these studies just happen magically, and it is a lot of logistics and grunt work and just slogging through data. So what did you see as risk factors for IVIG-mediated hemolysis? Well, I think, you know, the, we started off our study including anybody who was getting a gram per kilogram or more. Um, and we did, not, uh, we did not distinguish by blood group. So that was a, that was a, a wider 
uh, inclusion criteria that we that we ultimately uh, focused on. And the reason we we changed is that we just found that anyone getting a gram per kilogram, anyone really getting less than like around two grams per kilogram, um, give or take, didn't seem to be at risk of hemolysis. I mean, it just we just weren't seeing it. And similarly, we weren't seeing any hemolysis in the group O patients. And then we just realized we're enrolling a lot of patients and doing a lot of grunt work, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for very little yield. And I should mention as well that we were adjusting the dose for lean body mass. Um, so that when I say two grams per kilogram, that's, uh, that's an adjusted dose. Um, meaning that if you were giving patients an unadjusted dose, like say you have a patient with, um, with a high BMI, uh, their risk of hemolysis would probably be even even higher because we know that IVIG is is lipophobic. So for sure, dose and uh, and blood group uh, were were you know were clearly uh, the high risk factors right from the beginning. And in fact, that's that's who we focused our study on, um, and, and what we published on is that that particular subgroup. Within that subgroup of patients who were not Group O, who were getting um, you know, around two grams per kilogram, uh, you know, within a, within a, a one month period, uh, there were additional risk factors that, uh, uh, that came out. I'll let Don speak to what some of those were, but, uh, that's, that's where the really interesting stuff came out. Well, I mean, uh, it, are you referring to the ABO type? Right. Yeah. Well, I think like, you know, we knew that non group O was, um, was a risk factor, but within the non O's, there was a cute, there was a very clear skewing, um, for example, towards group AB. Once we did the genomics, I think uh, we got a better handle on, on who the high-risk AB types would were. Um, when we did the final analysis, it was clear that group AB were at risk. But originally, the first part of our, our study, we looked at zygosity because uh, everybody kind of thought that zygosity would be a, a, you know, one of the risk factors but nobody had ever studied it. No one had ever monitored for the, the uh, using genomics to identify, which is the only way you can actually do zygosity and ABO is you have to do it by uh, genetics. So uh, I think that was the first time that we actually kind of thought, wow, you know, group AB are really at high risk. Um, and and that, that, that original first paper was published in, uh, in Blood but uh, in the journal blood. So uh, I think the surprising thing was that if you were heterozygous, if you were uh, group A, but group AO, in other words, you had only one hit uh, of the aging, not two. So you weren't AA, you were AO uh, or BO. That, that actually seemed to be protective. And, and maybe, maybe logically you might think that might be the case, um, but we basically proved it by doing zygosity studies. And I thought that was surprising. And another surprise, I think, that turned out of the genetics analysis was the, the role of secretor status. Um, about 80% of individuals are so-called secretors and 20% are, are non-secretors. Uh, secretor basically in the blood transfusion medicine circle means that you uh, secrete uh, group A or group B soluble substance in, uh, in your blood. And the thinking was by a lot of people at the time was that the people that would be at lowest risk 
would be the secretors and the highest risk people would be the non-secretors. The thinking being that secretors would secrete this A or B substance and that would neutralize the anti-A and anti-B that was being transfused uh, with the IVIG. Um, and surprisingly, that wasn't the case at all. In fact, secretor status had nothing to do with the risk for hemolysis. And I think that was surprising. And maybe another surprising factor was that we kind of thought that uh, FC receptor polymorphisms might, might, might be important. What that means is that, you know, we have a number of FC receptors on macrophages that are involved in, in destroying red cells that are coated with antibodies, such as anti-A or anti-B. And we, we thought, well, maybe if we do this genetics analysis, we'll find a specific uh, polymorphism in one of these FC receptors that uh, is involved in the, in the risk of, of uh, IVIG-associated hemolysis. And these polymorphisms actually, when they exist, they actually make uh, result in the binding of the antibody-coated red cell or platelet or whatever to the FC receptor much stronger so that you would think phagocytosis would be increased. But that, another surprising factor is we looked at all of that. We had a group in the Netherlands that actually evaluated that for us. And we didn't find any real connection with FCR polymorphisms. And I think that was a little surprising. And the only genetics analysis where we found something uh, associated was in the ABO system. And that's where we first reported that ABs were, were much more at risk. It was interesting. I mean, and we saw that, you know, in, in other sort of more uh, sort of routine tests as well, um, that this, you know, having a positive direct anticoagulant test after you receive IVIG is not actually all that uncommon. Uh, you know, many patients who are not group O will develop a, a positive DAT after they get their IVIG. Um, not all of them hemolyze. Most of them won't probably. Um, but the ones who do seem to have stronger DATs. Their DAT has a, has a, has a higher strength of reaction. And again, it's just speaking to the same thing that it's, it really seems to be the quantity of antibody that binds to the red cell that really increases your risk. And if you have uh, relatively low antigen density, because you're a group O heterozygote, um, then you are relatively protected. And, um, you know, again, you would think that if that's, if that's sort of the important ingredient here is just how much antibody makes it onto the surface of your red cell, you'd think that being a secretor would be protective because you'd have all this soluble A and B substance to sort of, you know, mop up all the isoglutinins in the IVIG and, and protect your red cell. But that just did not appear to be the case for whatever reason. Um, being a secretor was not, uh, was not protective. Um, but again, I mean, there are all sorts of other, other things that seem to modulate your risks besides how much antibody binding to the recipient red cells there was, um, you know, clearly our study showed that the mechanism by which hemolysis was occurring was macrophage mediated uh, phagocytosis. We, we looked pretty hard to see if there was any kind of, uh, complement mediated uh, hemolysis in terms of like, um, you know, complement depletion or signs of uh, complement deposition on the surface of the red cell or evidence of intravascular hemolysis or, you know, end organ disease, you know, that you might expect if you had widespread complement activation, none. We didn't see anything. Like, it looked like it was mostly the macrophages that were doing this. And as for why some patients' macrophages appeared to be 
more uh, excitable than others. We did not find a genetic explanation for that, but we did see that how the patients were getting other medical therapies administered was important. Um, so one of the risk factors for IVIG mediated hemolysis is if you are not on any other immunosuppressive therapy. If you have a patient who is getting, you know, uh, some sort of immunomodulatory medication in addition to their IVIG, um, or even patients who have been on IVIG chronically for a long time, um, those patients appeared to be at lower risk of hemolysis, and it appeared to be because their macrophages were just suppressed, and they just were not, they were not in any frame of mind to, to aggressively phagocytose these opsonized red cells. But the patients who were not on any immunosuppressive therapy or who were getting IVIG for the very first time and maybe, you know, had not, you know, had any kind of suppressive effects from previous doses of IVIG, those patients appeared to be at higher risk. So I was actually going to ask you why you thought the secretor status didn't affect the risk, but it sounds like, although it didn't, you can't, you don't have a good explanation why, because it seems like if you're a secretor, you should have lower risk. Yeah, it just, it may be, I mean, I, I, I don't know if anyone's looked at this, but, you know, the sheer quantity of isoglutinins that are getting poured into a patient uh, with a high dose IVIG, you know, that just may overwhelm, you know, whatever mopping up effect the secretor status provides you. It may also have to do with uh, the density of the antigen and the fact that maybe the isoagglutinins uh, bind stronger to the red cells that express the A trisaccharide as opposed to the substance. Um, certainly the density uh, on the red cells is high for A and B. Um, I, I'm not really uh, aware of what the density is on substance. I, I don't know how much A and B substance in the plasma has been really studied other than to document that it's that it exists um, but you would have thought that it that it would have some effect but maybe it has to do completely with avidity um, that it wasn't able to compete with the red cell for the anti-antib but that's for someone else to study at this point excellent point I was also really surprised there was no complement that the complement hadn't had not been activated by the antibody coating the red cells. Yeah. Again, I think um, some of our patients had very profound drops in hemoglobin, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, 40 grams per liter, you know, in speaking Canadian here, I guess, or, or four grams per deciliter for your, uh, for your audience, um, you know, big drops in your hemoglobin. Um, you know, some patients had to be hospitalized even. And even still, there was no complement deposition uh, by DAT testing. It was all IgG. Um, there was no depletion of their plasma C3 or C4 levels. Um, and, uh, and you would think, right? I mean, this is one of the things that you worry about with isoglutinins like anti-A and anti-B, that they are such potent activators of complement. That's what makes them dangerous, uh, you know, in terms of giving somebody a, an incompatible red blood cell transfusion. Um, we just didn't see it. And it, it just may be that... Um, you know, the IVIG uh, is just layering out over such a you know, large population of red cells in the patient that there's, there's not quite enough density of antibody binding to any one red cell 
to get those two FC portions close enough together to, to trigger the complement uh, cascade that it, it really, it, it's, it's, you know, and, the, and it, but again, it, maybe that's not so surprising because we know that if you give patients ABO incompatible plasma transfusions, um, those appear to be relatively well tolerated compared to ABO incompatible red cell transfusions. And it, it just may be again, a matter of the relative density of antibody binding on any individual red cell it has to reach a certain thresholds to, to activate complement. And in our study, it just, it just didn't luckily for the patients. I might uh, just add to that, my sort of take on it. Um, first of all, uh, in the RH system, which are known antibodies that don't bind complement uh, ever, um, that you can have extremely severe hemolysis, uh, even plasma hemoglobin, uh, uh, hemoglobinuria, uh, because sometimes these antibodies uh, that don't bind complement interact very strongly with the with the monocyte macrophages, and they are, can be ferocious eaters of red cells. Um, we do an in vitro assay, and sometimes we've seen so many mo- uh, red cells stuck in one monocyte that uh, we try to make uh, you know. Uh, pictures of them like teddy bear monocyte or, you know, just because it has so many red cells, it looks like something, Uh, but they're just stuffed and you can see them kicking out pieces of red cells. So in some cases, and we didn't study this, but the monocyte macrophages may be just completely more active than others. Now we did look at one patient and published it where that appeared to be the case with a patient that, uh, that had IVIG associated hemolysis where the patient uh, lost half of, half of the blood volume, essentially, had, had uh, plasma hemoglobin, uh, uh, lots of it in, in their plasma, where the, uh, uh, you know, if you spun down a tube and looked at their plasma, it was absolutely uh, red, uh, actually purple. What type of active surveillance program would you recommend that clinical or transfusion services adopt? Would you recommend uh, studying ABO zygosity, recommending a DAT five to 10 days after their initial IVIG dose? Anything you would recommend? Well, in the paper, we we say that you should identify the patients who are at highest risk. um, And and those are the patients who are group AB, who are getting IVIG for the first time, and, uh, and particularly those who are not on any sort of long-term immunosuppressant therapy. And I should mention that when I say immunosuppressant therapy, steroids did not appear to be adequate, at least in our study, to prevent hemolysis. It was more things like, um, you know, like MMF or, or azathioprine or that sort of thing. So if patients are not getting anything like that, or they're group AB, first time ever getting IVIG, that's a patient you should definitely be monitoring like you should you should maybe have them come back in a week to make sure that they're okay um in terms of in terms of lab tests that you can do uh to predict that hemolysis is going to occur you know we did look at whether performing a a monocyte monolayer assay at day five to ten might you know give you a you know a, a clue that something bad was about to happen um and what we found is it's actually that's I mean, it's a very interesting test. You can get a lot of interesting information out of it, but it didn't actually perform any better than just looking at the strength of the direct anticoagulant test immediately after the IVIG was given. And um, and in there, if you have 
a negative DAT or a DAT that's maybe only weekly or microscopically positive immediately after the IVIG is given, those patients appear to be at lower risk, not no risk, but lower risk. Whereas anyone who's IVI, whose DAT is one plus or stronger immediately after the IVIG is given, that's somebody you might need to, to worry about. I have one more question I wanted to ask. Um, you mentioned the manufacturers. Have you been able to share this data with them? Well, we've published um, the results of our study, and um, and we did look at uh, at the the relative risk of manufacturer on the development of hemolysis. And when you correct for blood group and the presence of immunosuppressant therapy, and um, and whether you are getting IVIG for the first time or not, these are all all things that we know increase your risk. If you correct for all those three things, then manufacturer didn't appear to be uh, important. We were we had three major manufacturers that we were looking at. So we didn't see any difference that way. But I should mention that there has subsequently been new products introduced to the market that we did not include in this study. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Pendergrass and Dr. Branch for joining us for a great discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time.